Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of The Science of Motherhood. I am your co-host, Dr. Renee White. My other co-host, Dr. Mika Petucci, is off loving all the mums. (laughs) That is what we do when we are not on this podcast. We have the mother-loving business called Fill Your Cup in Melbourne and Hobart, and we are postpartum doulas. As well as in a previous life, we are scientists. So we are biochemists by trade, which is why we love putting together this, this podcast for you to educate and empower you. And we just wanted to give a big shout out to all the mamas across Australia who are having their babes right now. And we could not do our business alone. We have a wonderful team of doulas, our doula village. So a big shout out to Amanda and Caitlin and Georgie and Samara and Kate here in Melbourne and Hobart. And we provide in-home care for mums like you after you have had your baby. And what does that look like as a doula? What are we actually doing? So we come and visit you in three-hour sessions, whether it be weekly or you can have two sessions a week. It's up to you. We're really, really flexible. You get a beautiful FYC mama menu prior to your session and you get a choice of some fantastic postpartum specific meals, which Mika and I have curated as people who are very knowledgeable in the field of pregnancy and postpartum nutrition. And It is all about replenishing you and providing a beautiful opportunity for you to recover after the birth of your baby. So ourselves and our doulas will help you with just that emotional support, being heard with a non-judgmental ear. We fold your washing. We put your washing on in the washing machine. We change your sheets. We cook beautiful meals. We will hold your baby while you go have a nice hot shower. My goodness, the amount of times that I would have loved to have had someone do that for me. But I digress. I didn't have that. I didn't have that as an opportunity. I didn't know that postpartum doulas were a thing. And yeah, I I wish I did because it was a tough postpartum for me. So if anyone else is having a bit of a tough postpartum and you feel like you need a bit of extra care and support, you might not have family and friends close by or your partner's running a small business and they've got to go back to work like, you know, a week or two after the birth of their of your baby, please feel free to reach out. You can have a look at all of our offerings on our website, which is ifillyourcup.com. And we would love to chat with you. So speaking about nurturing mothers, oh my goodness, have I got an episode for you. Oh, this 
could have gone for a really long time this episode because I was just like a sponge with our guest today, Dr. Nicole Gale. She is a specialist GP and lactation consultant. She's an IVCLC who practices breastfeeding medicine and perinatal care for mothers and babies. And she is just dynamite. Like I loved speaking with her. Mika was was the one who kind of highlighted Nicole to me and she said we have to get this woman on the podcast she is absolutely amazing so within her practice she encompasses the intersectionality of infant feeding and settling problems with medicine and relates to pediatrics women's health psychiatry She's involved in education and advocacy as a core member of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Australia and New Zealand, which is a not-for-profit group. And she's extensively involved in education for doctors via organisation, facilitator and educator roles in conferences and workshops. And you can absolutely hear this in, in the conversation we have. I always have said, even when I was like a high school student, you know there's these people who you're like, you're clearly very knowledgeable in a particular area, but there is one, there, it's one thing to be knowledgeable, but it is another thing to be able to teach and convey that message to the wider community. And Nicole is absolutely amazing at this. You, <laughs> I just can't wait for you to listen. There is a moment and I know that is only audio, but I literally had my jaw open the whole time. The way she was describing the evolutionary mechanisms and reasons behind something like the infant breast crawl and what is happening and why there are particular things that our beautiful babies do while they're doing it. I cannot wait for you to listen to this. So Nicole's focused on providing holistic and individualized care to families in a comprehensive model. She's able to care for both babies and mothers, which is so, so important to us, especially helpful in complex situations. And she is an NDC or Possums accredited practitioner as well. If you want to get in touch with her, which I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to get in touch with this woman afterwards, she is just like a wealth of knowledge. She practices in Surrey Hills and Fitzroy, Melbourne, and you can look her up on her website, which is www.dr, so D-R, Nicole Gale, N-I-C-O-L-E-G-A-L-E.com. She's got all of her services beautifully on this website. It's a beautiful website. My goodness. She's got all of her services on there. So as I said, she's able to help you with antenatal, postnatal and women's health and pediatric care. I'm going to stop rambling. I cannot wait for you to listen to this episode. If you loved this episode as much as I did, please send us a DM through Instagram at fillyourcup underscore or send us an email, hello at ifillyourcup.com. I want to hear what you think about Nicole, good, bad and ugly, because I don't think there's going to be bad and ugly. She's just amazing. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Nicole Gale. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nicole Gale. How are you? I'm so fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to chat. 
I know we've just been talking offline and we are just like so pumped. And I have to say, (laughs) Mika and I were literally on the phone not 30 minutes ago and she was like so disappointed she couldn't make this call because she loves you so much. But we have spoken about what we're going to chat about today. So let's just talk about you from the beginning. So you're a specialist GP and lactation consultant you're also a mama. Yep. Can you tell us a bit yes. more about yourself, where you're from? Yeah. So I am a mum and I'm a doctor and I'm a lactation consultant and I live and work in Melbourne, mostly in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. And I have a beautiful family. I have twins who are nine and a half and I have a six-year-old, so three girls who I juggle, as many mums do, the the work and the kid balance. But my youngest started school this year, which has been a bit of a revelation. Revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really exciting. That has allowed me to sort of step more into this space and really expand the passions that I have. I've been working with mothers and babies since about 2014 after I had my twins yeah. and I had a very bumpy and complicated pregnancy and postpartum and it was really having that experience as a medical doctor with all of my health professional background, which really uh, I was educated, I was empowered and yet I still struggled in this space and I felt that despite the really, really good intentions of many of the staff that were working in the area, that we just weren't supporting mums very well. And I really wanted to start to move into that area. So, yeah, that's how I've ended up here. Oh, man, Nicole, I hear this all the time. It is that classic, like, you go in and you think you know a lot. Like, I've spoken to nutritionists and neuroscientists Mm. and psychologists and, you know, GPs like yourself and both Mika and I, you know, (laughs) we're well-educated individuals. We thought we knew what we were getting into. And then you get there and you're like, hold on a minute. (laughs) No one told me about this. What is going on here? Did you, uh, like, I I wonder, and if you're comfortable with talking about it, like, did you feel like the system had failed you or, like, what was your impression of it all? Were you angry? Because I was angry. I was super angry about it. I was like, I feel like I've been duped. Like, this is complete BS. Yeah. I had all of the above. So there were times that I felt angry, but I had a lot of grief as well Mm. around what I perceived to be the loss of opportunity to have bonding with my babies and the lack of say that I had, the disempowerment. And I also felt the rigidity of the system was based a lot around fear of consequences rather than meeting the mothers and the babies where they were. Yeah. And it just did not seem innately nurturing, flowing on. And I know that, and especially as a doctor, I know there are circumstances where medical intervention is appropriate, but it it did not feel like the, the normal stages of what mothers and babies go through mm-hmm. was honoured or understood or respected. And yeah, I mean, I had I I don't like to go into it too much because I don't want to make it about me. But, yes, I had quite a traumatic time. I had postnatal depression. I had PTSD. I had pretty much every breastfeeding issue that you could think of. I had babies with cow's milk protein intolerance, allergies and reflux, and two of them, and they were premature as well first time round. So it, it was just a really bumpy time. And I don't feel like 
the individuals within the system were not there for the right reasons, but I felt that the system was really broken. I felt it was really fragmented. Mm -hmm. I was going to my maternal child health nurse for the ways and one of them was a lactation consultant, but the other wasn't. And then she referred me to a council lactation consultant. Then I had a paediatrician for the babies. Um, I'd had one in hospital and I had a community paediatrician. And then I had my obstetrician and my GP. And it just felt like with medical issues and needing support that I was having to pack up my babies, move out of the house and go and see a million different people who only saw one small piece of the puzzle. And I just felt, this is crazy. I'm a GP. I sit here. I can do obstetrics, gynecology, pediatrics. I can upskill in feeding. I do mental health. So can we not use the opportunity to really foster connection Mm -hmm. um, and trust and then move from there? And so that's why I thought I'd be well-placed, I think, to to move into it. And probably in retrospect, it was a little bit of a silver lining as well in terms of needing or needing or wanting to take something positive from a difficult experience. And there have been times where I've needed space from working with mothers and babies when I've needed to make sure that I've worked through my own stuff, that I don't bring it to consultations. But now that my children are older, I find that I can take a step back. And I just think it's just the most beautiful work. And I'm so privileged to be in a position where I get to see mothers and babies in this space. Mm. Um, And I'm never constantly not blown away by their resilience and by how fierce and wonderful that they are with their babies. And I'm never not blown away by what their babies are doing. I just think they're the absolute best. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that is so amazing. I feel, I'm so glad that you've said that it is a silver lining, that you experienced something that was obviously quite traumatic. And, you know, the statistics are that one in three women experience birth trauma here in Australia. So unfortunately, it's not a surprise, but I'm so glad that you're channeling that energy into such good, good work and amazing work. And I think the other comment I'd make is that I I do like to be honest about the fact that even though I'm seeing people in a position of authority, that I make mistakes. Yeah. You know, I just think it's really important to be vulnerable and honest with people about what the motherhood experience is. I don't think it helps mothers and babies to sit there in an authoritative, patriarchal way and say, well, this is what you do. And people think, oh, well, you've got it all together. Mm. I, I just don't think that helps. So. Yeah. I think it's important to share that everyone struggles at times and that's okay. Exactly. We're all human at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what kind of acronyms we've got at the start or the end of our names. Like it it doesn't matter. We're all all in the same position. Thank you for sharing that because, yeah, it is about vulnerability and that's something that we are always mindful of, I guess, in Mm. our doula practice as well. And we were just talking amongst our doula village yesterday and we were making kind of a bit of a bit of a reflection point on how how important it is to be to be vulnerable to our clients but also mindful of the fact that particularly in those newborn days mothers are sponges and we are very open because of that brain remodeling and everything that we go to we're so open to information good bad and ugly and so we do need to be able to curate it carefully for our mothers oh yes and yeah. I and I think 
We've got an upcoming podcast that's going to air with Dr. Jessica Stokes Parish, and <clears throat> it's all about fake news and how mm. to distinguish fact from fiction on social media and the emotional language that's being used as clickbait and things like that. And it is preying on mothers typically. Oh, and, you know, it's around, oh, you know, it's all about, you know, death and hurting and this and that. Mm. And it's just like you've got to cut through the BS sometimes. So I'm quite glad that you raise that kind of vulnerability aspect. And, and being someone in that position of authority, it's really good to hear that you're reflecting on that as well. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, yes. No, you're very welcome. You've got to be careful with transference. You know, yeah. you have to meet people where they are. But I just think meeting them with honesty. Yeah. In terms of on, on a human level, yeah. I think is one of the more profound things because what I took away from that experience was that, and, and the reason that I like doing this work is that I just think we need to sit better with women in the space where they're at. I don't mind what their goals are or where they want to go or what success looks like for, for them, but I think being able to have someone in that difficult space who can sit with you in an honest way mm-hmm. is what I can't change what outcomes or issues a mother and baby necessarily are having, but I can make an effort to not to have her not feel so alone. Yeah. And I think that's where it doesn't matter what your background is. Everyone is doing it in this space from lots of different angles, but that's what's most profound and I think that's what women remember and yeah. why doulas are just so profound as well because they build that trust and relationship and then sit with women where they are through that process mm. and that's what they remember. Yeah, totally. I just, I'm I'm thinking of, I was watching a Brene Brown uh, thing on Netflix. Oh, what was it? It was like sitting, sitting in the dark or something like that. She said a quote around attachment parenting. Oh God, what is it? I'm just thinking. Well, I quote is she's, she said something mm. like the dark does not destroy the light. It defines it. It's our fear of the dark that casts our joy into the shadows. But she she was talking about attachment parenting and it's something that I'm mm. quite mindful of. It was quite profound at the time when I was watching it. She said yes. sometimes when, you know, her daughter would get upset, there would be something going on at school and, you know, our typical instincts as parents is to go in with let's fix this, let's fix this, let's fix this. I, I don't want to see my child you know, hurting or anything like that. But she said sometimes, or if not most of the time, yes, you can't fix the problem. You are going to make a more, more resilient human being out of your child by literally holding them and sitting with them in the dark while they cry. And because you are providing yes. a safe space for them to feel that emotion, to feel the sadness, to feel the anger, to feel yes. whatever it is that they're feeling and letting them know that you're right there next to them and it's and it's okay. And once they've processed those emotions, that's when you go into the how are we going to work this out together, you know? And, Most definitely. And you need that with mothers. It's, it's quite a difficult conversation when I'm talking to people about as you say, the work that a doula does and trying to get that perspective across to them that it's a, it is about providing that non-judgmental ear, that practical and emotional support um, it, it, because it's, it, it's so hard mm. to get that across to people and until you're in it and you're feeling it and, you know, a lot of the, 
a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, that first meeting that we have after the baby mm. has arrived and we turn up at the house, I would say 99% of mothers are in tears mm. in that first session. And they're all so apologetic about it. Like, oh, yeah. So sorry, I'm crying. I'm sorry. I'm like, I would actually be concerned if you weren't. Like you've just gone through yeah. this a huge change. Huge change. Huge well, you've gone change. through a, a death and rebirth. And I think that that's, that's a really important point and something that um, having children, they're not teenagers, but being a parent for a number of years, I actually think nature starts that process during pregnancy. Oh, during absolutely. pregnancy, you're required to trust and go on the journey with your child and sit in spaces that sometimes are difficult and challenging and certainly after they're born. And where parents come into their own is when they start to see, they start to trust their own intuition and they start to be able to sit in that space um, with their children rather than sometimes there's a problem but other uh, other times there's no problem but being able to sit and adjust in that position. And I actually think nature starts that in pregnancy you practice it in early parenthood and then you take that through the years. So when you've got, because your baby is going to, to a certain extent, they're going to sleep when they're going to sleep, they're going to feed when they're going to feed and that feeds through into they're going to be ready for solids when they're ready for solids. They're going to walk when they're ready to walk. They're going to toilet train when they're ready to toilet train. You can keep going. They're going to go to kinder and thrive when they're ready. They're going to start school when they're ready. And I think you could probably keep following that on. Mm -hmm. And if you can learn how to connect with your child and sit, I think nature's training us in terms of the skills that we need as parents in general. And we conceptualise babies as quite different to toddlers, as quite different to school-aged children and teenagers. But the basics of, as you say, being able to sit in that space with them mm -hmm. Let them feel whatever they feel and follow their lead with while holding and supporting them. I think that is transferable all the way along. And yeah. I'm not saying I do that well as a parent all the time, either, oh, or, or frequently. No, we're like um, I, I say that to it's my easier said than done. But yeah. I think there's something in nature that actually starts that early that yeah. I don't think you connect straight away. No, as and a new I, parent. as I talk to people about that whole brain remodeling, I mean, that starts yeah. at the moment of conception. Like, you're, yes. you, you know, a woman's brain starts to completely remodel and, you know, the research shows us that um, although our brain is shrinking to some extent, which I think mm. some people have looked at that and gone, oh, you become dumber, you know, and it's always used mm. against us, that baby brain thing. But in fact, you're levelling up on skills like empathy and, you know, Definitely. adaptation and, you know, just as I said before, that perception in terms of yeah. your environment, heat, smell, you know, sight, all exactly. of those things. So it's such, such an amazing well, thing. I, I totally agree with you and I think it's not so much that there is reduction, I, this is how I conceptualise it, it's more that the resources are diverted to, yes. to attune to the needs at the time. So our brains will, the neural pathways that we're using, it's like walking through a field, the pathway that you're, you, you'll take the easiest path through the field that someone's walked before and the more you do that, the more path is well trodden and the, the weeds or the flowers and the trees and bushes overgrow in the other areas. 
So your brain will reinforce the circuits that you're using, but if you're not using them, they prune. So mm. that's not that there's a downgrade. I totally agree mm. with you. It's just that it diverts the resources to being attuned in a sensory way so that you can actually respond to your baby. And in that way, I, I agree with you. I think that you level up and I believe, I can't quote the studies, but I believe the evidence is around that the other areas balance out. But actually, when you look at the whole postpartum and then beyond, the brain has had even more neural connections, yes. nerve development. Yeah. And then the brain is even more connected, functional in that way. And so, yeah, I don't think it's mum brain I think it's a diversion of resources in a really appropriate way and we always see what the body does in a really negative light and we question well where where it's so modern we have all of our tools we know better than the many years of evolution and adjustment that our bodies have done so that must be something negative whereas I think when you really look at mums and babies and what's happening for them what I love about working in this space is the more that I learn the more that I feel that every little bit of behavior or change actually has a function mm-hmm. and I just think it's incredible we should really hold reverence yeah for ourselves and our babies and what they're doing Absolutely. And we're going to deep dive into that right now, Nicole, because okay. we've got three topics that we like have kind of decided. We've got so many things to talk about, but uh, <laughs> let's let's start with, I guess, that moving back to traditional models of perinatal care. Like we've kind of mm. just touched on that, the innate capabilities of that mother-baby dyad, you know, things like the newborn breast crawl, the feeding reflexes, yeah. the infant cues. Can you walk us through what what do you see in your clinic? So, you know, yeah. are, you, are you seeing this move back to traditional kind of models of care as well? And, and why do you think that's happening? I think there is a move. I mean, my I first had babies almost 10 years ago now, so it's been a decade. Mm-hmm. And there was the bubbling of transition then, but I really think in the last couple of years during COVID and beyond, that's when I've really seen... More people moving actively into the space, taking up space and using their voice, and I just love seeing it. Um, I think the reason that there is a movement back to more traditional reverence for what goes on is because, just like we've discussed earlier, I've had an experience, you've had an experience, many women have had experiences that have left them wanting. Some are working in the professional health spaces and others are not, but many are, and they do exactly what we've done and thought, well, what can we do that's a little bit better? How can I educate myself? And then in that sense, they're they're tuning in with what innately feels right for them. Mm. I think that a lot of the practices that are within the medical sphere or also Uh, within the society tell us what mothers and babies are meant to do Mm -hmm. but that doesn't align Mm -hmm. with how you feel about your baby in that moment when they're crying or they need to they want to sleep or you want them to sleep I just I think there's a mismatch and that's where and then because of that mismatch people go seeking yeah and when they start to seek in terms of how could things be different they often feel, what am I doing wrong? They might come across some of these different ideas that people have, uh, families, communities have practised for centuries, for millennia, 
and that feels intrinsically right. It aligns to them with what they have experienced with their babies. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of wisdom reinforces, oh, okay, my instinct was right my baby did this, that makes sense to me now. Mm-hmm. And when you connect those dots, I think that's why people are moving forward in that direction. Whereas a lot of the advice that is given to families just doesn't align with what you experience as a parent mm-hmm. when you have a baby. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it I feel like feel it's, right. it's kind of like touching back on that, you know, that neurodevelopmental kind of programming that begins at conception it's it's that trusting that we have we're wired to do particular things you know it like I see this all the time people have read particular books which have very regimented plans in them and do this at this time and do that at that time and I was hand on heart I was one of those people who read those books and I thought I've got this. I've totally got this. If I just follow the plan, then everything yep. will be okay because I'm a type A personality. I needed to have a plan in place. But what happens is, is that your yeah. baby didn't read the same book, sister. No. <laughs> you no. know, your baby comes out wired to, you know, feed on demand connect. and connect and bond and want to sleep on you the entire and time. And be on you. Yeah, they're not aware mm. that you know, they're a different entity from you for like, you know, those first three months. Well. And, and you're just like, yeah. I was sitting there going, hold a minute, this is not supposed to be happening. I read this book and it said that yes. I should be doing X, Y, Z. And and I started to get severe anxiety and panic because I was like, oh, okay, I'm a crap mum. Something's happened. I can't like do this properly. What's going on? And then, you know, once I was just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> what happens? What happens? And I do this all the time with clients. What would happen if you did this? Like what what would happen? Let's experiment. Yes. What yeah. happens if you tried to do this today? What do you think would be the worst thing that would happen? And we're not talking about like, you know, you know horrendous like medical advice no. or anything like that. No, no. But it's like my, baby, you, my baby was unsettled. So, baby, okay. you know, Whatever. I'm like, what do you think would happen if you popped him in the carrier and went for a quick walk around the block? And they're like, "Uh, I I don't know. And I'm like, do you want to try? Like, do you want to give it a go? And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, I guess so. And then the next week I'll come and they'll be like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I popped him in the carrier and he instantly stopped crying. And I'm not saying it's a silver bullet, but it's about going, you know what? Babies are humans as well. And yes. sometimes they need a different like set of scenery because I get bored. If someone had me in this office definitely seven, <laughs> I would be like, get be me out of, out of your mind. Yeah. 100%. So it is just I, about trusting that instinct. I agree. I also think that there's a bit of a radical feminine movement here going on. And that's not to say for people who have been working in the space, colleagues, mentors that I've worked with, that they have not been working towards this for a long time. I just think it might have hit a bit of a critical mass. But I I think this is a radical feminist expression as well in that 
a, a lot of the ideas around how we're meant to care for babies or what things are meant, inverted commas, to look like come from the behavioralists of the early 20th century, which were really white men who felt that they were superior to traditional knowledge that did some exper- experiments and felt that that translated to caring for mothers and babies and came up with, created a program that they said was significant and effective. They also undermined the confidence of women. And in doing so, they actually destroyed generations of innate knowledge that had been passed down. And so what we're left with today is the hangover of that, where those practices were not Mm evidence-based. They were, I mean, they were potentially trying to help mothers and babies, but I don't think they were coming from a respectful place necessarily in doing so. And that has coloured the care that mothers and babies have had. And that is a hangover. But women recognise, hey, I'm being told to do this and it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. And they want to reject that. And that's also something that I love about this space and why I love working with women because when, and I think you'll see this, Renee, as well, when you see a woman come into her own where she has her confidence comes up, she starts to respect her intuition, be flexible with her tools to meet where she is and where her baby is and then get to the point where they're speaking with confidence and feeling a lot better about things, Mm -hmm. that is just the best thing to see. Where they don't need that support in the same way anymore. Yeah. They they can generate internally that they know that they've got this and that they're moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And to me it's also that confidence in that they don't need permission from someone else to try something. And we always talk about this with our clients. It's always the conversation of what feels right for you. And they're like... And most of the time it's, I don't know, I don't know, what do you think? And it's like, no, 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 let's let's explore this. Just sit with this, what feels right for you? And they're like, well, you know, it feels right for me to pick my baby up straight away when they're crying. I'm like, okay, great. So let's do that. And you keep doing what feels right for you until it stops working for you. You know, there's, yes. we have lots of conversations around co-sleeping and obviously we provide yeah. the red nose guidelines around safe co-sleeping and things like that. But it is constantly this stigma around co-sleeping. But I think there was yes. some recent data out from the UK, correct me if I'm wrong, and we're recording yep. this in July 2022. Yep. So, and it was around the fact that people can now, like there's research that is safe now, like there's, I've, I've, I've forgotten off the top of my yeah. head, but it's, can I, you, do I you know what I'm talking about? The, re- the recent I I think the, the NICE guidelines or yes. NICE guidelines yes. that came out recently, but some of this is not actually new. So when we talk about co-sleeping, we know that if you have a mother and a breastfed baby co-sleeping on the same surface, that with I won't go through all of the different safe guidelines, but it's worth looking at. If you're doing it safely, your SIDS risk is lower than if they were separated from you. Mm -hmm. And I think people confuse a suffocation risk 
and acids risk. Yeah. A suffocation risk is where you've got something covering the baby's face and mouth and nose and they can't breathe. And there is a suffocation risk no matter the surface that they're sleeping on. But the SIDS risk, if you're exclusively breastfeeding, if you've set things up safely, if you're not inebriated or have medications that are affecting your ability to respond, we actually know that co-sleeping is safer from Mm. a SIDS perspective. And yet this is not promoted nurses, maternal child health nurses, midwives, they're hamstrung because they have to follow the red nose guidelines. And while I support those guidelines being disseminated, I think that we underestimate women when we only give them half of the picture, which is that you can co-sleep safely. And I think what what some of the evidence shows is that parents have always co-slept they just haven't they've felt ashamed they've fallen asleep with their baby in the chair or the couch and you wake up I've done it you wake up and the baby slipped down a bit and for a moment your heart skips and you think oh my god what could have happened yeah whereas I I talk to parents a lot about it's okay to recognize that you're feeling really tired and take yourself to a safe space yeah that is set up to do that and it's okay so I think that if we can incorporate some of that Mm. into our advice, then that would be respectful. Yeah, absolutely. And that would make sense and that fear would come down with regards to all sorts of things. I think I'm just in a lucky position with the particular letters behind my name that I am to a certain extent allowed to give the evidence and let parents make Mm. give, give them some external authority to reassure them and some Patients need that. Yeah. But I, I love that there are so many people working within the space who are providing all this evidence and actually empowering women because that's what I think we need to do. But, oh, gosh, co-sleeping, yes. I I think it's an excellent tool uh, done safely, I have to, on a podcast day, but I, I spend a lot of time talking about co-sleeping. I try and meet the families where they are. So some families are just not comfortable doing it. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally okay. But I think if you're falling into that pattern, you're doing it safely and you're beating yourself up. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Exactly. Um, I think and often a lot this of- is the tipping point with mental health too. Oh, Women who 100%. are catering on PND, PNA, and you actually go through what's happening and why they're finding whatever arrangement they've got hard and you say, well, what would happen mm. if you put them down in wherever they're going to sleep for the night and you have your cup of tea if you can or a shower, whatever, and they wake up and then they want to be in bed with you for the rest of the night. If you did that, what would happen? Mm. Yeah. And they say, oh, well, it wouldn't, I'd get some sleep and they'd be happy next to me. You know, I just, I think a lot of parenthood is about experimenting. Yes. But, but I find that a lot of people are fearful of doing that because of judgment mm. or and or they don't have the tools and the education around things like safe co-sleeping and things like that. I mean, yep. even uh, I was, I feel like I'm an educated person, but I was so terrified yeah. to co-sleep and it only, yep. I've spoken about this previously on quite a number of our podcasts, it got to the point where I was so sleep deprived and my daughter Eva had a bout of croup when she was like seven months old or something. And I was just like, 
there is not a chance in hell she's going to be sleeping in another room without me. Like I need to exactly. hear her breathing. I need to like, I need to be exactly. right next to her. And yeah. that was the first time that we started co-sleeping. Yep. And I was already under the weather. She was clearly under the weather. But it was such irony because I remember saying to my husband after the two weeks that we had been co-sleeping, mm. I said, I've never felt so at peace and mm. rested and yep. well after. Yes. And I was just like, I honestly was thinking like the first night was a bit uncomfortable and I was like constantly checking, you know, and I was like, this mm. is just a little bit strange for me. But once you got into it, you were just like, I don't like, I, <laughs> I remember saying yeah. to my sister, I don't know how people don't do this. Like the, yes. we're never going back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I totally understand, but I find it phenomenally amazing that innately women just, I'm putting my arm up here in sort of a crook. Yes. You just innately know to put the you baby do. in the crook of your arm. Yeah. Um, and you just innately know how to move and hold yeah. the baby in a way that is generally quite safe. There's something, there's something we're wired. programmed we're, within our we're brain. Wired we're for wired this. for it. Yeah. We're totally wired. Yeah. And I want to deep dive into like that next topic that we're going to talk about. And, and that is how everything babies do, and I'm going to throw in and mothers do, like there is a reason for that, you know, and why yeah. we need to start respecting that rather than fighting it. So yeah. let's talk about a little bit more around, you know, the types of things that we are wired to. And I, you know, and if you want to touch on a couple of those things that we mentioned earlier, you know, that newborn breast crawl or feeding reflexes mm. or infant cues and things like that, they are probably, I mean, I, I'm I'm hazarding a guess that people have heard yep. of those things, but, like, are there particular things that we should be mindful of? Like, how many people are actually, I'm just thinking, how many people are actually enabling the opportunity for a breast crawl? Mm. Like, is that something that, is is happening are we getting that opportunity in in hospitals and things like that it's not commonly done yeah i talk about it most families don't know about it it's not commonly done unless you're working perhaps with a midwife group program or a home birthing midwife mm-hmm. it's not necessarily routine practice but i think it's worth taking a step back when approaching this topic and thinking about how we think about babies in general. So when we disempower women, we disempower babies too. Mm. So we disempower them. And I think this lens of the authority knows best on women translates to the babies don't know what's good for them and we have to do things for them. But actually, if you think about it, our species would not have survived if our baby, when they were born, could not come to the table with some skills that facilitated the things that they need to do to grow and thrive, so feed and rest and be safe. And so babies are born with lots and lots of skills and they've actually been practising them in the womb from uh, in the first trimester. So prior to 12 weeks, they start to practice some of the skills and they practice them sequentially, actually. They master the first and the second and the third and all of these skills that we sometimes see, they talk about nine stages of a newborn breast crawl. So the newborn breast crawl is where when the baby is born, because you've got the umbilical cord and the baby is still attached to the mother, you can't take that baby away from the mother. 
Mm-hmm. So nature already is saying you're going to have to put that baby on the mother somewhere. So immediately the fact that the placenta and everything doesn't come at the same time makes sense because the baby has to go up onto the mother's chest, which then seeds good bacteria immediately, um, reassures the mother, temperature regulation, breathing heart rate regulation. And then when they're on the mother's tummy or chest, they go through these stages, these rather predictable stages of behaviour where they do certain things that helps them adjust to being out of the womb and also get to the breast and have their first feed. And when people have, this was, I can't tell you when it was discovered, but when researchers took a step back and actually just stopped and watched what babies did uninterrupted, they started to notice that babies went through, had these predictable behaviours and they actually relate to the reflexes. So like the stepping reflex when you have a baby and they Mm. step, part of that, if you can imagine, that's one of the early newborn phases within the crawl. So if you've got a baby on your chest and you've got this postpartum belly where you're going to have the placenta come out and you need it to contract down so that you don't bleed, if you've got some gentle massage from your baby's stepping reflex and they're oh, on you. Wow, yes. It, it massages the placenta. You've got oxytocin release, which also encourages that placental contraction and that coming down. Yep. So your baby is actively working and participating in the things that you need to recover. Mm. And that's just one tiny bit of it um, where they're on your chest. Nature has put that baby up on your chest and then that baby is nature is making that baby do things that help your recovery and help you be well. Um, So stepping reflexes is one of the things, but there are lots of others. There's nuzzling and head bobbing and there's periods of rest. And we know we've done research around if you have a cup of tea as an adult and you've done some learning and then you have a moment, a quiet moment where you just sit, a still and sit for a moment, you'll consolidate that learning and that memory, well, babies will do that as well. They'll have periods of activity um, on your chest after birth and then they'll have just some quiet moments as well if you leave them uninterrupted. They're consolidating memory. They're getting smell. Um, So this newborn crawl I I just think is rather incredible when you look at what the babies are doing and how that serves them and how that serves the mother. So that's the first opportunity that the baby has when they're born to start to demonstrate some of those skills. Um, and they practice them in utero. That's amazing. So they practice the stepping in utero. They they go through all of the stages and they practice and they come out and immediately their brain is wired to do that. Now, this is assuming a term baby, no medical problems, sure, no sure, sure. of course. But interestingly, um, there's been some more research that's come out that even in preterm babies, if you put them skin to skin, they will go through these same stages. Even months after birth, say a 28-week baby, premature baby, 34, 36, whenever you put them on their mother's chest, skin to skin, they will exhibit these behaviours, maybe in a slightly different way, Mm -hmm. but they do it. They do it because they're wired to do it. So our babies come to the table. They really do come to the table when we have them in terms of feeding and being well. So, I I mean, I could talk for a long time (laughs) about all of these things, but I think feeding reflexes is one that I don't see enough press around. Um, So a lot of the time I see in clinic women with breastfeeding problems who 
say, how do I get a good latch? How do I, you know, how do I get the baby onto the breast? And I think a lot of the time in hospital and no criticism to the staff working in the hospital, but they do a mother-led facilitated latch of the baby where they grab the baby and they grab the breast and they push the baby on. Now, there are times where that is appropriate for various reasons, but I think allowing the baby as much scope to participate as they are able to mm-hmm. is always should always be the basis. Um, and babies can latch from birth. Mm-hmm. They can get on to the breast and there we often think we're going to do it better but there's imperceptible coordination in their mouths and their jaw and their movements that actually create a far deeper latch that means that there's less pain and there's more milk going across to the baby and there's better stimulation. And so one of the things we do in the clinic is thinking about, well, if I want to get my baby to have a good latch, I think about whole body positioning and activating the feeding reflexes. So I can go into that if you want me to. I would love, I, I would like love I'm... to know because it's definitely one of the things that, as a doula, it's an. I would probably say, you know, it's feeding and sleep that cause the yeah. biggest issues with our clients, and we're not lactation consultants. We don't, we know, we're not moonlighting no. as that. But I think any piece of advice that you could give you know, a new mum in terms of Mm. following that instinct, following that baby's cues in terms of those first key hours, you know, because Mm. uh, the way I always describe it and everyone understands that I'm a huge possums advocate. um, So I've learned from Pam and Renee and stuff like that is, is the fact that you and your baby are two puzzle pieces and you need to work out how you're going to come together and, and, form that connection and so the other thing I always see is you know mums who have second and third babies and they're like hold a minute I had this breastfeeding journey nailed with my first or second and now I've Mm. like got a new baby and I've completely not she's overconfident but she thought it might be a bit easier and I'm like Mm. but you understand that this new baby yep. is a new baby. It's a new puzzle piece. So you guys need to work out how you're going to come together. And it, and all it takes, and it is, it's that whole body movement. I think, yep. as, as you say, I think we've seen a lot of people just ma- being manhandled and like shove the baby on the rib. I was definitely one of those people in the hospital where babies' heads yeah. were you know shoved on and I was like this is not working (laughs) you know like can we try something else but it is Mm. can you explain like a few things or just some tips that mums could possibly kind of implement into their breastfeeding journey the number yeah the the number one tip I have is skin to skin what is happening what is happening in that skin to skin Nicole so the reason, and I, I advocate skin to skin not just in the first few days or the first week, but if you're having issues um, and problems with your baby or you're struggling to settle, you can do this for weeks or months afterwards mm-hmm. because it has the same effect. So what's happening is that when the baby is skin to skin in terms of a from a soothing perspective, they've got some pressure, they've got some sensory input mm-hmm. um, that's does calm and soothe their neurological system also it's like you know if you're worked up and you're crying and you're screaming and you know your breathing gets a little bit erratic uh actually their breathing tunes into yours and regulates and their heart rate is um 
reduced, we get the stress hormones that come that are reduced. So it reduces stress and the love oxytocin hormones come up. So it puts them into a more receptive state to do whatever it is that they need to do. And it calms them yeah. significantly. Um, and it also calms you as well. Yeah. If your baby settles, now I've held baby, my baby yeah. to screen them. There's nothing worse than that. But if the baby is able to settle and you have that input, you calm as well as yeah. the parent holding them. Then in that state, because we know it's a bit like the, the toddler having a tantrum, they're not going to be receptive or be able to do very much or function when they're really worked up, when mm-hmm. they're really dialed up. Mm-hmm. So it actually dials them down and then they can move forward. But that frontal pressure on their chest and their abdomen we have nerve sensors in our body that when that is activated, when you've got pressure on the front of the baby, mm-hmm. that tells the baby's brain, I'm in a feeding position and it is time to wake up. Aha. Uh-huh. So when you have that pressure, proprioceptive pressure, sensory neural input, it tells the baby this is a time to wake up. Now, you don't see that in no. the baby's brain. but if you follow through, you can often see the difference. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things is skin to skin, and that then keeps the baby pressure-wise in contact with the mother. Mm-hmm. And your best positions with breastfeeding, it doesn't matter which fancy way you do it or what name you call it, mm-hmm. that baby has to be tucked in close to you. Yeah. That baby has to be as close in as you can possibly get, get them. You can actually turn them over onto you. And I actually advocate against use of heaps of breastfeeding pillows Mm. because I want the substrate for holding your baby's weight to be your own body because then that just innately facilitates them being in close to you Mm. and wakes them up. Yeah. Um, And it's a bit like so for a baby when they're breastfeeding, it is a workout. It's a workout for them. So this is their run around the block. Now, they're built to do it. That's fine. This idea that a bottle, they exert less energy, that's a misnomer. Babies respond to flow, not in terms of being awake at the breast. They respond to flow. They don't tire. But it is a bit of a workout. Now, if you think I'm a tennis player, Wimbledon's just been on. Yeah. If you had a coach and you were going to play tennis and you're going to say, well, I need to improve my hit, you know, um, or my serve, your coach would say, well, okay, so where are your feet? How are you turning your body yeah. in order to achieve that movement in a functional and best way? Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah. So when we're doing activity, we think about our whole body in space and the position of our body and our core strength. So babies are similar in that sense. So we want them to do something functional. So we need to set them up in terms of the whole body positioning. Mm-hmm. So being in really close immediately just turns on their feeding reflexes. Um, and then innately what mothers do is they often will, so I'm gesturing here for the people who are listening, I'm talking about a cradle position or cross cradle where the baby's across your body. Now, usually what will happen is that when you try and put the baby on the breast, if you have a little bit of a postpartum belly mm-hmm. where your uterus is up, a little bit, it hasn't completely come back down. There's a nook there. Do you know that sort of yep, little nook? I know that, the nook. Yeah. <laughs> you know the nook? Well, nature has created the nook because that's where your baby goes. Aha. Uh-huh. I love and it. And you use you use the weight of the baby to sit in the nook. 
Yeah. Now, when you breastfeed, it releases oxytocin in a in a woman's body that causes the uterus to contract down. Yeah. But if you've got your baby in that position, it's also putting a bit of pressure on yes. your uterus to help it contract down too. But if the nook wasn't there, you wouldn't know where to put your baby. Yeah. So if they're in that nook across, what happens to their legs? They just sort of curl around, curl around. don't they? Yeah. So what's happening there is they've got a little bit of bend in their hips. We call it hip flexion. But that little bit of bend travels all the way up to their spine, to yep. their neck, and actually allows their neck to bend in a certain way. So it allows their neck to just bend back a little bit. So what I normally say to parents at this point in time is put your chin on your chest yep. and try and open your mouth really wide. <laughs> yeah, good luck And they that. will say... And they will say, no, nah, I'm having difficulty. And then I'll say, okay, if you had a really gla- large glass of water and you were going to scull your glass of water, what position would you drink that in? You would have your head in a neutral position with your neck bent back a little or extended back a little, yeah. and that would be the optimal position to have a good drink. So that is actually the optimal position to get a wide mouth for the jaw. If your baby's bent over, then they can't open their mouth really wide. Mm-hmm. So the wide mouth is based on the position of their neck. The position of their neck is based, I'm going backwards, is yep. based on the position of their hips yep. and they've been woken up to feed. Yeah. Um, and so when they're in that position, mothers will also or usually put um, their arm around the baby, around their, and uh, so their shoulders, they're holding their shoulders or their hips. Mm-hmm. So when you do activity, you also need core strength. So we know that if you have rubbish core strength, it's probably you serve. As a tennis player, is going to be rubbish too. Yeah. Your baby doesn't have core strength. You provide that by tucking them in and holding their, their shoulders and their hips securely. And then they're in the best position where they're going to perform something functional, which is their feeding, their exercise, but they're turned on. You've got the whole body positioning that's in alignment Mm -hmm. and then they're at the breast. Um, They're at the breast ready to latch. And the latch is the last thing that you do. Oh, my God. Because you need to scaffold them and then set them up. Yes. And then the latch is the last thing they do. And they often babies, look, and there are exceptions to this, but often babies can do this and sometimes this shocks parents when you put the baby and you set them up in the right yeah. position, and then you sort of line them up in terms of a target. Yeah, <laughs> This is gestalt breastfeeding that relate. It's poss- it possums, but it's uh, it's been around for a long time. Yeah. But you sort of line them up to the target. You make really small micro adjustments if you need, a bit like north, south, east, west. Yeah. But you get the baby in close. Now, the other thing is often parents will talk about hands getting in the way. Yeah. You know, the little hands that are, and you go, oh, my God, I'm going to need someone to hold the baby's hands and I've got the baby here and how do I get them on? Oh, my God, it's driving me mad. Yeah, that was me. (laughs) Yeah, and that was me too. And I didn't understand what the hands did, but the hands have a purpose. So the first comment I would make is that if you can get them really tucked in close to you, they can't, and their hands are sort of cuddling the breast around. Yeah. So one hand is on sort of the underside of the breast comfortably and the other hand is on the overside. They're almost hugging it. Yeah. But if you get them in close enough, they can't get their hands across. This is true. They can't. And then what they do is they move their little hands on either side of the breast. And when you're doing this, I'm tapping on either side here, people can't see. Yeah. That's actually massage of the breast. 
So that massage starts the letdown to say, come on, milk. Oh, my so God. The baby's hand, this is blowing my mind, Nicole. Uh, <laughs> the baby's hands start the letdown and then the bobbing and the localising, you can see the baby in that position. And I think we rush a lot of the time oh, yeah. as parents. But if we just slow things down and we give the baby to sit a moment to sit there or lie there and realise, okay, my, I've got pressure on my tummy and my feeding reflexes are turned on. It's time to feed. I'm in good position. I feel nice and secure. I'm going to move my hands around and I'm going to bob my head a bit because where is that nipple? I know I can smell yeah. it. I can feel it. But I'm going to help find it. Oh, there it is. Okay. And now I'm ready to latch. Yeah. And if you wait for them, that's the other thing is, I mean, yes, if you've got a baby that's totally asleep, but if you wait for them and you allow them to participate, for the most part, it's a better latch. It's Mm -hmm. more pain. It's pain, less painful. um, And it's more comfortable than the baby's transferring milk. What you have just described in like 10, 15 minutes is just, I wish, (laughs) like, I was just thinking back to the very expensive breastfeeding um, course that I participated in at the private hospital Mm. that I went to. And I remember looking at the videos going, this is from 1986. This is not up-to-date information whatsoever. I have no idea what I'm doing, but oh my goodness. (laughs) And I don't think I, like anyone who is listening, driving, walking, pushing a pram, You know, if you are listening to this now, please send us a DM or something or an email through Instagram and tell me, was that not like the bomb version of like, this (laughs) is how we organise a a successful breastfeeding journey? Because it is all about the why for me. Like, you understand why your baby needs to be positioned in a particular way. I think things become a whole lot easier for mothers to have and set themselves up for that successful breastfeeding journey. Because I was looking at, oh my God, Nicole, they gave us this, (laughs) they gave us this A4 (laughs) sheet of paper and it had diagrams of like, you know, the breast and the baby's mouth. And I distinctly remember, you know, either screaming in the hospital and I'm like trying my best like to sort this out. And my husband thought, he thought Mm. he was being very useful and he came over and he put the diagram next to my breast and the screaming baby and said, it doesn't look the same. I think you're doing something wrong. And I was like, you better get that piece of paper (laughs) out of my face real quick, mate. Yeah, <laughs> I was just back like, away. I was like, there is going to be some serious damage done yeah. to you in a minute. But yeah. honestly, though, like, oh, my God, you've blown my mind. If people, and I think this goes back to, if people took the time to sit yes. down with a woman either before she's had the baby or when she's had the baby. And, like, that didn't take us two hours to explain. No, it didn't. And I think it's it's like learning any skill. It's a, for me, 
understanding why is yes. really significant. Yes. And then, yes, so you're playing tennis for the first time and you serve, you're trying to serve. Look, it's going to feel a bit clunky yep. and you might need a bit of tweaking and that's fine. But if you understand, okay, I throw the ball up in the air and then I move my arm over and hit, like you understand a, yeah, a brief the outline. basics of it, yeah. But, but it also comes with this reverence of I'm going to let my baby do part of this and I'm going to work on my part of it. Yeah. And then we're going to work together as a team. The only thing I didn't mention in that is the reclined position. Oh, yes, position. the deck chair. So you're I call doing it the pina all colada of that. move. <laughs> yeah. Just pretend you're, you're doing, sitting back with a pina colada. <laughs> you're doing all of that in the deck chair position. So the first step is just getting a bit of incline so that you're you're the scaffold for your baby's weight, not a pillow. The baby, you are holding that baby's weight on you. Then you're not leaning over, getting wrist and thumb pain. Yeah. Um, and the shoulder pain. Oh, and the shoulder man. pain. And you're also not disrupting the latch when you have to move. So you're doing all of that in the reclined position, which you'll auto- automatically hold your baby in that space. Yeah. And it all has a purpose. And 100%. I just think it's incredible. Yeah. I just think it's incredible. And then mums go, oh, I'm so comfortable. <laughs> yeah, because you are because you're in that reclined you position and you're just like, oh yeah, I could, I actually don't mind this. Cause you know, I we yeah. do see a lot of mums who are just like, I'm really fearful of the next breastfeed because it's so painful and I don't know what I'm doing wrong and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, Can let's make- just let's oh. just have a look at this situation. And yes. the first thing I always check for is the deck chair. Um, recline because yeah. I'm like, let's just push this back a little bit. And they're like, I was like, they just don't want rel- to. I know because scooch your bottom forward in the yes. chair and just relax back. And everyone goes tense and goes, oh, what are you doing to me? What are you doing? <laughs> and then they go, oh, oh actually, that's yeah. comfortable. Um, the other, can I just make one other comment? Hundred percent. Not, it's not meant to hurt. Oh it's my not god! Meant to hurt. Yes, it's not meant to hurt. <laughs> I don't care if your baby is two to three days old. It can feel like a strong sensation, but you're not meant to be in toe curling pain. I don't care who talks to you. If it's like that, something's not right. You are not required to just indefinitely suck it up and go with it. It's not meant to hurt. It's not meant to hurt. And I wish I could scream it from the rooftops. That would be Um, your, um, that would definitely be your billboard for the world, wouldn't it? (laughs) Breastfeeding. It's not meant to hurt. It's not meant to hurt. I don't know. I think I because, uh, yeah, but be. I think it's, it is, it's that classic, like you're a mum, it's like, you know, suck it up, move on, stop complaining yeah. about it. It's like, yeah, I see it all the time. I just want to oh. touch on Nicole because we've yeah. already spoken about the fact that, you know, instead, like, let's look at the things that, that nature has given us. So a beautiful kind of plump tummy after the birth of our baby, that is the cushion that we are going to be using our nooks that we've got on our bodies, you know, there for the cradling and things like that. Let's talk about the pitfalls for new parents, the, the, (laughs) the Mm. excessive purchasing of Mostly yeah. unnecessary items. And the, and I'm going to just provide a little backstory to this because we all fall okay. into this trap. 
I hand on heart had the Excel spreadsheet and I was like, I need all of these items. And I remember my hands up. Yeah, I did it too. I remember when work was like, oh, what do you want for like your maternity leave kind of present? And I said, oh, just get me like a baby bunting voucher, which baby bunting, I'm not slagging you off. I think you're amazing. But I put all my coins into that basket and I went on this big shopping spree with all of these things that I thought I needed for all of Mm. like, and I remember it was probably about, oh, about six weeks before I was going to give birth. I contacted um, one of my very good friends. She'd already had two babies. She was a nurse. And I said, Mm. now, I need to call you because I need to go through my Excel spreadsheet with you just in case I've missed anything. And she was like, what spreadsheet do you have? (laughs) (laughs) And she knows me very, very well. She's like, please call me because she's thinking, how much money have you spent on this crap already? And I went through the list and I was like, so do you think I need a bouncer? She's like, I don't know. Like, what about a baby carrier? She's like, I don't know. And I was like, and a cot versus a bassinet. She's like, I don't know, Renee. And I was like, what do you mean you don't know? You've had two kids. You're a nurse. Like, you should know this. And she's like, Mm. I'm going to tell you something and you're probably going to get quite upset about it. And I was like, okay. And she was like, I don't know because I don't know your baby. And I was like, Mm. okay. She goes, you understand that you're not going to know until they arrive, until you try things, until you work out their personality, until you work out whether they actually like to be in a pram or they like to be in a carrier. And she goes, and I'm going to blow your mind again. One week they might like it and the next week they won't. And I was like, that's not going to work out for my Taipei personality. Mm. (laughs) Yes, But I had to suck it up and I was like, okay, all right. Um, Yeah, we're just going to have to put a couple of these things on the back burner then. So tell me about these things. And is there something, I am mindful of your professional reputation as well, Nicole. Is there something where you're just like, (laughs) I love, I love this, you know, product or you're like, I really don't think that this is amazing or. (laughs) See, I, I think the ideas that I express sometimes families might not like what I'm saying because you and I have been there and there is no judgment and sometimes you just think I'm so sleep deprived if anything will help I'll give it a go god I will definitely give it a go and I have zero judgment with that honestly I mean we've all been been there (laughs) where I'm like all been you want fifty thousand dollars to make my kids sleep do you want to buy this program that has elaborate birthing regimes or will fix your baby sleep in two days or this or that? You want a magic fix? Yes. Um, and I so get that. But the thing is that often the, the tools that we buy separate us from our babies mm-hmm. and they interrupt that that flow and that working together backwards and forwards with the feeding and the sleeping. Yeah. And so whenever I think about a gadget or a thing, I think about, okay, how's that going to fit into what my baby likes Yeah. and how could that help and how could that harm at the same time? Mm-hmm. And so there are sometimes tools that I recommend but for the most part, I totally agree with your friend. And I think that she's 
bang on when she says you're not going to like this because that would have, to an extent, popped your bubble of control. Oh, and there's going to be, yeah. I'm going to have the list <laughs> and then everything's going to be okay. Yep. Um, but I think the thing that I say to parents is if you need bottles or you need a pump or you need a shield or whatever it is, and I mean that's to do with breastfeeding, if you need something, the farm the hospital pharmacy is open. You can go down and get it. You know, baby bunting is open, other stores are open. You can get things pretty quickly. Mm. So this idea that I have to have it all beforehand, you don't. No. And I think you've touched on this really beautiful point, which is um babies when they come out, they they are 110%, they're not robots, they're human beings and their personality comes out from day one. Yeah. So I had the lovely experience of having twins and um, one twin, we called her Riggler because she just wouldn't stop moving and we couldn't think of a name for the other so we called her non-Riggler. She was just way more chilled. Now, I could put those two children in front of you today and you will pick the one that is bouncing around and excitable and the one that just isn't like that. So I actually think in utero they have a personality. Oh, and yeah. And then when they come out, they have a personality and temperament and you're just going to have to experiment and get to know each other. You know, you can fall in love with your baby straight away, of mm. course, but sometimes falling in love with your baby takes a bit of time. But at the very minimum, getting to know your baby takes a bit of time. Mm. And so things that facilitate your connection and help you feel good and relaxed and confident are great, but anything that interferes with that I worry about. So the one thing that I recommend for new parents is a baby carrier because we'll go back to nature, we are mammals. We mm-hmm. think we're really superior beings, but we're animals. Yeah. We're mammals. And for as long as we've had babies, we have carried our babies. So every culture has some, every traditional culture has some way to strap the baby to your body and carry them. Not every traditional culture has a burping regime, <laughs> but every traditional culture does strap their baby to them because yes. your baby settles. Um, and I'm not saying it's the solution all the time. No. But you know, that's the one thing that I think baby calms, mum gets a sense of being able to get up off the couch and move around, have two hands and have a little bit of sense of autonomy and freedom. Yeah. And it's a beautiful way for dad or grandma or grandpa or older brothers and sisters to bond and participate as well. And that baby loves it. And you cannot spoil that baby. You cannot. No. No. Baby carrier is... I think is a really important thing. I think um, the other things are really when your baby comes out, they don't need very much. They need you. They need milk. They're going to need some nappies and they're going to need something to keep them warm. The other stuff you can sort out. Now, there's no criticism if you're nesting and you want to get all the things. That's totally okay. But the reality is some you might use and some you might not. Mm -hmm. Or as your friends say, you know, today, okay, my baby's a bit unsettled. And I feel like I've been stuck at home. Well, why don't you try the pram today? Okay, they don't want to be in the pram. Let's put them in the carrier and try a walk. Let's yeah. just mix things up. So being really flexible with your tools. But your tools that you have are you, your breasts, and the world, the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, so patterns on the walls, light, listening to your voice, singing your baby a song, going for a walk, hearing the birds chirp at the same time that kind of thing. So they're the tool. You, you have your innate tools. So anything that disempowers you, just be a little bit wary. If it adds to how things are flowing, that's great. But I don't actually have, 
I don't actually have heaps of things. Oh, I just wanted to flag something as well because this is one of the things I had an issue with. Um, I couldn't because I was just so... I just think I had the blinkers on. I went to, you know, a baby bunting and I tried a, a particular brand of carrier on oh. and I was like, oh, my God, this is so heavy and so uncomfortable and I just didn't buy it at all because I thought mm. that was it, potato chip, right? But yeah. what I have since discovered is this huge range of, like, baby carriers and not only yeah. that, there are people who will yeah. come to your house with, like, a whole different raft of baby carriers and they will yep. teach you how to put it on. They will t- yep. show you all the different brands. And I was like, brain explosion. I wish I knew about Brilliant. those people because I think, albeit Eva really enjoyed being in the pram, I think she would have loved to have been carried a little bit more. Like we did mm-hmm. a lot. I did a lot of just having her on me for the first Yeah six weeks but I think I would have I would have loved the opportunity to as you say have that autonomy be able to walk through the house because I was so mindful of she's sleeping I cannot move (laughs) you know you're just like oh my god what do I do no noise no movement don't wake the baby yeah don't wake the baby but I think if I did have her in the carrier it would have been it would have created a bit more opportunity for me to like get out and about and go for a walk down the street and stuff like that so I don't think you're expected to know I don't think you're expected to know how to use it so I actually say to parents bring your carriers in and I'll help adjust yes um and I think I wish that was universal training really for everyone who works with women because I think it's just such a good tool and you do need to find one that works and feels comfortable for you. Yeah. The other thing, the other comment I'd make is, and this is going to sound a bit funny, but with the trauma that I had with my babies in the early days, Mm. I had unwell babies and I had a period of separation and I found that quite traumatic and difficult being separated from my Mm. babies. Um, and I had breastfeeding issues and I felt, how am I going to nurture them? What can I give them that's special if I can't breastfeed? What can I do? Um, I got into baby wearing. So I had I had wraps. There's whole movements of things. Mm. I've still got them. They're some of my most beloved, um, treasured things from my baby's infancy and uh toddlerhood but what it actually allowed in retrospect was I had a bit of PND mm-hmm. I was struggling I had the the oxytocin of the baby settling on me yeah. feeling close my baby was not taken away from me and it actually was soothing because they would settle and I'd feel a lot less anxious and it actually fostered a bond between yeah. us and I actually found it a healing tool it is a healing, healing tool, tool not yeah. always There's no one size fits all. So sometimes this doesn't work. But for for me, it was a healing tool, and I know it is for other women as well Mm. in many different ways, but it actually has a therapeutic value. Yes, absolutely. It has therapeutic value, and it has therapeutic value in not keeping you trapped in the house. Yes. Because getting out is the hardest thing. Yeah. Absolutely hardest thing. And and I that's one of the things that we always flag with our mamas. It's like if you're feeling a bit rough, uh, it might sound counterintuitive, but you need to get out of the house. Like you need yeah. to let's work out a way. Like 
And most of the time I'm like, let's get a baby carrier out. Let's work out how you're going to do that. And let's just get you for 10 minutes fresh air in the sun, get some vitamin D going and, you know, that. and every, like I say every single time, (laughs) you know, I haven't (laughs) done the meta-analysis, but I would Mm. say more often than not, you know, I'll talk to them and say, hey, this week, we're all about getting out of the house. Even if it's like you're walking down the road and you're just getting a chai latte and you're walking back home and that's 10 minutes, I don't care. Let's just focus on that. And more often than not, I come back for the next session and they're like, Mm. oh, my God, I've had such a good week. Like, And they're like, oh, you know, it has been kind of tiresome, but I've been managing to get out so it's not been as bad. And it is that change of scenery. It's that, you know, immersing yourself in nature Mm. again that innate kind of connection that's what we are wired to do (laughs) you know we we need it our brains need it and their brains need it so there's lots of tools to buy I'm going to buy my baby this play mat with these tools on top and I'm going to buy tool a and tool b sorry toy a and toy b um to entertain my baby but actually your baby just wants to be with you chilling in the world going and doing what you're doing um and so you don't you don't need those fancy things and I say to mum sometimes if even if it looks too hard to go for a walk open the door and just go outside yes literally just go outside there's been a number of times it's also a circuit breaker for a really distressed baby Mm -hmm. and there have been many times where myself or my husband at night, we've got a baby that's screaming. We've tried everything. We're not quite sure what's going on because that's really normal, not to yep. always know why your baby's unsettled. And the circuit break, I go outside. It could be 2 o'clock in the morning. No one, everyone else is in bed and you're out in the dead of night. But it works. Yeah. It works. Just go outside with the baby, even if you don't leave your property. Just yep. go outside Side. for just yep. a little bit of time and just have a little bit of fresh air and a bit of change of scenery. I think not always, but um, it can be really helpful. Mm. Nicole, I always knew we were going to run out of time before we were going to run out of topics. (laughs) So we are going to wrap up with our rapid fire, which are typically the last kind of three questions that we always ask our guests. Um, What is your top tip for, I'm going to say first time mums, because I feel like that's the group that we probably need to be yeah. speaking to. Well, I think it relates back to what we've been saying anyway, which is trust your gut. Don't let anyone who is um, inferring or implying that because you're a first-time mum that you don't know what you're doing, you're the expert on your baby and you're the expert on yourself. So if you're a first-time mum, my top tip is forget that you're a first-time mum. You're a mum yeah. and it's okay to seek out support, but seek out support in a way from people who empower you. Yeah, amazing. I love that. Yes. Um, Did you have a go-to resource when you were kind of gearing up to become a mum? And I guess did that change between your two um, pregnancies with your children? There, I, I didn't find any particularly good resources. I mean, it was 10 years ago, Possums was in its infancy, neurodevelopmental care it wasn't really widely known. There was a lot of really, tra- uh, not traditional, but there were really uh, some other resources. So I didn't, I didn't really have very much. Um, 
I've just sort of muddled along. I think muddling is the normal. It's actually muddling has sort of a negative pejorative association with it, but actually it's being flexible and resilient and trying different things. So resources, I think there are more now. I think the ABA, I think um, the milk and honey with possums is really good. Uh, I think the Raising Children Network is actually Mm -hmm. excellent and is evidence-based. I would like to hope that mums have health professionals around them who are educated and supportive but I think that they're good um, starting points I think that there are um, Kelly mom for breastfeeding problems Um, I'm involved with the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine and they have protocols for health professionals that you can look at as well Um, yeah Okay, no, 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 that's a really really great answer though. I love that kind of muddling thing. I love it. Um, Our last question is, what do you keep on your bedside table? Um, I can't keep very much on my bedside table because I've got a dog that picks up the socks and everything and (laughs) chews them. And then I've got little kids that run around as well. So I might have a book. Um, I have some earplugs because my husband snores. Um, (laughs) My phone, I pick it up and look at it when I wake up or want to do the Wordle. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but I don't have a lot. I try and put it up out of I have a photo and um, candle and some nice incense and if I'm feeling really loved up, I might buy myself some flowers sometimes oh, and put them there that. occasionally. I haven't done it in ages, but it just makes me so happy. Do that so, this week. Yeah. Do it. Do it, do it, do it. I love it. Thank you so much. Oh, my God. My brain is exploding with information. (laughs) And I absolutely just loved the way that you have broken down such important and empowering information. And I am so, so excited for this episode to air because I'm just like, preach, preach, mama, preach. (laughs) No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. We could probably chat all day long. We are definitely going to have you back again because we have got so much to talk about. Like we've already got like, I think it's like three more topics. So you, that's it. We're adopting you. You're going to become like our resident um, FYC village (laughs) (laughs) member. So that's very kind of you. Oh, thank you so much for coming along and um, we will chat soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.